Hightech can be a driver for better inclusion of an underserved community. The industry can be a driving force for inclusion if we turn the inclusion paradigm on its head, bringing the industry to the excluded community rather than trying to bring the excluded community to the industry and cultivating supportive environment for both potential candidates and firms. This is Mission to Scale, a podcast that reveals the tools, mindsets and strategies that organizations and funders need to make the most impact because the world's biggest problems need solutions at scale. I'm your host, Dan Borelovitz. I'm excited to kick off a special series of Mission to Scale with the Stanford Social Innovation Review, or SSIR. SSIR is an award-winning publication covering cross-sector solutions to social problems. Since the start of my career, SSIR has been a profound source of best-in-class research for me and the team at Spring Impact. In this special series, we take an exclusive look at the latest social innovation research, perspectives and case studies featured in the summer 2022 issue of the SSIR magazine. For our first episode, we're tackling the thorny issues surrounding tech inclusion for excluded communities. We'll be exploring the barriers that candidates from geographically segregated neighbourhoods face, why common approaches to diversity, equity and inclusion aren't working, and digging into a case study of a fascinating solution. To explore these topics, we have the pleasure of speaking with co-authors Linda Jacob Sader and Smadar Nahab. Linda is a research associate at the Harry Truman Research Institute for the Advancement of Peace. Meanwhile, Smadar is an experienced high-tech executive and is the founder of Tsofen. Tsofen is a non-profit that aims to fully integrate the Arab community in Israel into the Israeli high-tech industry. I researched diversity and inclusion efforts within Israel, targeting the Palestinian community. That's Linda. And this is also how I got to know Smadar. She was an interviewee. As I went along with my research, I realized that what I was actually interested about is learning about change strategies for interrupting uh, both economic and political inequalities. I uh, grew up as a socially aware person, cared a lot about, especially about humanism, inequality of people. And that's Madar. My parents came from Germany. They immigrated in the early 30s as, you know, German socialist humanists. And that was the background on which I grew up. Here, Linda explains the main idea of the SSIR article. The objective of the tech inclusion model that we introduce in the article is to create mass participation of excluded communities into high-tech in areas with thriving uh, tech industries. What I liked about the model when I started talking to Smadar, it was not employing this classical model of uh, diversity and inclusion that replicates power dynamics where the weak or the excluded community needs to employ much efforts to be included, but it had this switch. 
What's important to understand is that high tech is an engine of growth for economies. Israel is an extreme example of that called sometimes startup nation, where it's clear that high tech is the driving force for the economy. Israel's startup economy began emerging in the late 1980s and early 1990s. In the last decade, it's produced groundbreaking startups like Waze. Waze is a satellite navigation software bought by Google for more than $1 billion in 2013. Major tech companies like Microsoft and Samsung have also established R&D centers and accelerators within the country. The Archimedean point of the model is that the industry can be a driving force for inclusion if we turn the inclusion paradigm on its head, bringing uh, the hegemonic industry to the excluded community rather than trying to bring the excluded community to the industry and cultivating supportive environment for both potential candidates and firms. Here, Linda lays down the four main components of the model. The first one and the most central one is building a high-tech operation within the territory of the excluded community. And this is what we mean by saying building high-tech to the excluded community or the underserved community instead of bringing the excluded community to the industry. The second is um, building capacity because a lot of times uh, people from excluded communities did not have the chance to gain the experience or the informal knowledge that people in hegemonic societies have. The third component is building an ecosystem and convincing the local community of the relevance of the tech professions, because a lot of times the community is not aware, it, it doesn't acknowledge that uh, tech professions are relevant for their community and the communities are not aware of what is, in general, high-tech work. And the fourth component is recruiting the government. I will say that in 2008, when we started, out of an industry of 120,000 people, there were only 350 Arabs. 350. This is 0.03%, which is an impossible situation. But we went to these 350 and we had 30 of them that were our basically our advisory board for everything. You talk about the prevalent underrepresentation of Arab communities in the technology industry. What do you think some of the root causes are for that issue? You know, people used to think and to say about Israel that the reason is that the high tech grew in the army, started in the army. I think it was in the eyes of the hiring managers at these early stages. Something that's changed a lot later because the industry became much more global. But in these days, it was basically, we were subsidiaries of business in the United States. So the concept and the lack of engagement between Arabs and Jews was definitely a, a major issue for the hiring companies. The stories of these days were that uh, resumes were thrown to the garbage before they were even looked at when you saw that the name was Aram. I think when we talk about diversity and inclusion, and we talk about barriers that concern 
language barriers sometimes, lack of understanding of what's going on here, from different expectations. Um, in Israel, we're talking about, uh, and, and perhaps in other cases as well, about uh, social conflicts uh, or political conflicts uh, that are in the background of trying to bring different communities together at work. Uh, for example, when a, again from the Israeli case, when a Jewish Orthodox person works with a secular person, or when a Palestinian person works with a Jewish person, there are many underground conflicts that are there and that are affecting also the recruitment processes and the ability of people to advance within the organizations that they work in. So there's a number of paradoxes in there minorities, excluded minorities, are not able to get the jobs in the first place and then stop training and you have this sort of downward cycle. The other challenge, I assume, is around actually getting the tech companies to want to do this, to actually set up offices in these communities where it's not, you know, standard places where offices might be. I have a question about the motivation of the companies for doing that and a concern that, you know, the idea is a fantastic idea but if we're relying entirely on companies to be altruistic in setting up and there's there's not sort of the gain for the company necessarily is it viable that this is really going to grow and become something which is significant it can't be altruistic no company no business can survive on being altruistic and value is huge i think that's why Corporate companies are opening offices all over the world, and not only for, you know, underpaid positions, but also for highly qualified positions, because they don't have enough talent in their place. Now, what we are offering here is access to a community that is unreachable for these companies. Here, Smadar shares the motivation of companies like Microsoft in setting up offices in these unusual locations. They said, we dream that we will be attractive for young Arab women. They said, we want this untapped source of talent that nobody else, and you can't get as close to that unless you really come close to them. I would like to mention something else, and the risks that companies are taking is that the audience or the employees community initially is not experienced. There is a very large Israeli company called, um, actually it's a global company called Amdocs, and they employ about 300 people in Nazareth. And initially, everybody, almost everybody that worked there had no experience. So that's a challenge. Opening a site where you don't have experienced people, uh, that's a challenge. And here exactly comes one of our key, but also tricky components. And this is government support. Smedar and Linda's tech inclusion model requires recruiting support from government. For the model to be socially and economically sustainable, the authors propose that the government funds the initial integration efforts via salary subsidies. They argue this encourages tech companies to hire inexperienced employees 
from the excluded communities. You know, in the article you say government is essential, and I do agree with you, but if government are not willing to play and aren't engaging, you know, is there another way? I would like to say that uh, first government doesn't necessarily be, you know, the central government. It can be local governments and municipalities, etc. Philanthropy cannot do that. It's too expensive. I mean, philanthropy usually looks at how it can help so that businesses, NGOs will become sustainable. And here it's exactly what we need. We need a big push in order to be sustainable. I mean, after two years of a new employee, they're experts. And by the way, they contribute a lot and uh, they can move also elsewhere. I think philanthropy has a role in supporting the NGO that propels the whole model. The NGO that is responsible for uh, recruiting uh, candidates, for training candidates, for getting the government to be interested in this kind of venture. But we are more doubtful about the legitimacy of philanthropy, of subsidizing part of the salaries of minority employees. It's hard enough to create a, a business anywhere, let alone when you're using marginalized communities who are not trained. That makes sense. Do you think there is the potential in the medium to long term? Definitely. And if not, they'll vanish. There were a few companies that didn't succeed in uh, Nazareth. But uh, the first company that started in Nazareth started together with, uh, it's called uh, Galil Software. And it was started by a few Israeli entrepreneurs who came from the high tech. They had similar perception that I had, and they said, we'll employ your graduates. And so often could not succeed without Galil Software and vice versa. Galil Software is now almost 300 people and it's profitable. You know, it's not a startup that will have an exit of billions of dollars, but it's a, it's a actually service company, but very successful one. Our assumption is that in the long run, there shouldn't be any difference between companies that are located in uh, central high-tech uh, parks or in more distant or maybe um, poor neighborhoods where you have a community that's starting to be involved in high-tech and is participating in uh, working in those companies. So in the long run, there shouldn't be any difference in the chances of profitability. You talk about the four components, actionable components of tech inclusion and all of them, these four components being essential. I'm interested in the first point, which is that tech operations need to be in the heart of the excluded community. Um, given our experiences of the last couple of years of the pandemic and the fact that a number of the biggest tech companies in the world are now entirely virtual, I mean, essentially what I'm thinking is, you know, having all those four things in place is hard and the more barriers we can reduce, the better. Do you think there are some possibilities to make it easier through remote working so it's not necessary to set up physical offices or does the physical office really matter in terms of the model working? I think that there is a lot about the culture. I don't know how much we talk about it in the 
article, but it is, there is a lot in it. We didn't want to generalize, but informally or without generalization, I would say that some things are really culturally biased. For example, the fact that you find candidates being shy to answer a question that they are not sure they know the answer for is something that is actually a disaster in an in high-tech interview. I mean, you're being asked a question and what is expected of you is to discuss the question and find a, one solution or another and discuss it. I mean, it's not a matter of true or false. It's not black and white. So this is just an example. There is the issue, we write a little bit about it in the article. There is the issue of teamwork. These are things that you don't study at home. It's things that you get from collaborative experiences. Uh, I have another story about one of our graduates at Sofen from the first years, and he studied in Jordan. He did not believe he'll have any chance working. And then he did a course in Sofen and he was accepted to one of the first companies in Azurite. And he was telling us, you know, I never believed he was looking at the beautiful offices they have. And he said, you know, I never thought I'll be working at the high tech. And today to take my young son and show him that this is where daddy works and, you know, you can do even better is something that is worth thousand words. Just connecting to what Smadar said. If you understand the barriers, not only as getting accepted to tech companies, but to creating this mass participation of this community, of this excluded community in these tech professions, and you understand that a central barrier is that the legitimacy of working in these tech professions and, and the belief that uh, we can do it, we can make it, we can work in these professions. These are the central barriers, and they are barriers that are affecting not only candidates, but also like um, high schoolers who decide which professions they're going to study. So you're two people with a very strong track record of helping and devoting yourself to community service. At the same time, you're both Jewish, so part of the majority within Israel. So we're hearing the story from both of you but it's really about the community and helping the undeserved. So I'm just interested to know the dynamic here and how you've worked to ensure that the voice of the community is heard. I think both Madar and I are involved in um, also writing and working with the Palestinians in Israel. I think what we have here is the usual dynamic of the more privileged society members trying to build on our privilege to do something better. I just want to say the common perception is that it's very hard to start, initially start working people from the different societies together, from the hegemonic and excluded societies together, in the Israeli case, Arabs and Jews. But I think Smadar's experience shows that if you look at it as a basic condition for starting, something, then you're able to do that. If you think it's nice to have, then you skip that. I think in writing the paper, 
we felt confident enough that we can express the voices of uh, excluded communities or give the voice to those communities through the paper. Here, Smadar elaborates on the prerequisites for the tech inclusion model to work. So there needs to be a need. Because as I said, it's not a solution for philanthropists. It's not a solution that assumes that business will do favors for society for a long time. They can get some help, but eventually they have to be business-wise viable. The other prerequisite, which is much more controversial, and we had problems how to even voice it or express it, is the fact that the community is located in relatively in a communal area, in a close neighborhood. This is necessary because of two things. One is that once you ignite industry in that place, if there are only, you know, 2,000 people around there and you employed 100, then you're done with it. So the opportunity is not big and it won't attract companies. If it's not center of a collective of the community, then it will uh, disappear, will, you know, vanish. The impact won't be as good, it's very important. Just to say that the geographical principle is central to the model. What positive impact do you hope we can achieve if the tech inclusion model that you've put forward is widely adopted across the world? First of all, to say that the positive impact is always limited because the the model is not going to change the world. But it does offer a way to work against the gap between uh, the poverty of excluded communities and the phenomenal wealth the tech industries bring. If there is business there, more people from the dominant community go there. So there is also this bidirectional movement between the underserved community and the dominant community Today, I mean, there are many Jews who would not go to Arab cities unless, uh, you know, they want to buy some presents or eat some homos or whatever. But we have hundreds of people from the Jewish community who have been doing business in Nazareth with Arabs. That's a very, it's not only the fact that they are equal, But also the the city of Nazareth is a place where you can do business and not only come for tourism in the best case. Fantastic. And what's one call to action you'd want our listeners to take away from this conversation? I want to find the one place where I can promote this so that it will be adapted in Europe, in the United States for their own minorities. I'm not satisfied only with uh, adopting diversity and inclusion practices, but getting involved in actually building operations within excluded communities and advancing NGOs like Tsofen, who do more work to support that. I think that will be great. And I also want to say that um, it's not enough to build an operation within the geographical part of the excluded community. You have to have an NGO that is uh, invested in uh, recruitment processes, that is invested in being in touch with the local community, that is invested with engaging the government and bridging the business and the, the business community with the local community and with the government. 
you have to have all the components together. For example, in Israel, many operations were built in the south of Israel, which is considered the periphery. And this is actually the application of our first component of the model, which we feel is the most important component. But in many ways, it didn't succeed because it didn't have the other components in it, or not all of them. So this is also a takeaway message for people who, who will think of the model as an option or as a suitable um, solution or attempt to change things, that uh, you need to make sure that all components are there, that you're, you're working on all components, even if it's not exactly at the same time, that they're all there. If you want to dive deeper into the topics discussed today, the summer 2022 issue of the SSAR magazine is available online May 26, including the article co-written by Linda and Smedar titled Tech Inclusion for Excluded Communities. A link to purchase a print or digital subscription to the magazine is in our show notes. And of course, you'll find many other fascinating articles in there too. Before we go, We'd like to thank SSIR for the work that they do and for partnering with us in this series. If you love Mission to Scale, please recommend our show to a friend or colleague. You can subscribe or follow our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Mission to Scale is produced by Spring Impact and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at Spring Impact, visit springimpact.org and follow us at Spring Impact on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us, and I'll catch you in our new episode next week.